Even more than two years after it was released, the SSR episode about The Hunger Games remains one of the most popular ever. For your reference, that's episode 134. But today, we are moving right along in the beloved Suzanne Collins series and talking about Catching Fire. A follow-up to the massively successful The Hunger Games, Catching Fire was published in 2013 and finds Katniss and Peeta forced to re-enter the arena, even after beating the odds by surviving their first round as tributes as a duo. Before they're back in the games, though, they take a victory tour of Pan Am, and after threats from President Snow, Katniss feels more pressure than ever to prove to the public that she and Peeta are madly in love. As they tour, they begin to notice signs of a brewing rebellion against the wealthy capital. At first, Katniss isn't sure what to do about it, but back in the arena, it becomes apparent that she and her fellow tributes have more power than they realized to affect change on a massive level. Oh, and her complicated feelings about both Peeta and Gail persist. There is so much to dig into with this book, from influencer culture and love triangles to movement building and PTSD. My guests and I cover these bases and everything in between. We talk about dystopian governments, the all-important Team Gale versus Team PETA debate, and what young readers might take from Catching Fire. As an expert in public policy and economic disparity, my guest read the book through a very interesting lens, and I can't wait for you to hear all of her thoughts. Meet Heather McGee. Heather designs and promotes solutions to inequality in America. Her first book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, spent 10 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and was longlisted for the National Book Award and Carnegie Medal of Excellence in Nonfiction, among numerous other awards. Last summer, The Sum of Us was adapted into a Spotify podcast by Higher Ground, Barack and Michelle Obama's production company. The Sum of Us was also recently adapted into a Young Readers edition. Heather's 2020 TED Talk, Racism Has a Cost for Everyone, reached 1 million views in just two months online. I learned so much from Heather in this conversation, and I know you will too. Keep in touch with her by checking out her website at heathermcgee.com and by following her at Heather C. McGee on Instagram and Facebook or at hmcgee on Twitter. If you love listening to this conversation, maybe this is the week that you share about SSR on social media. Take a screenshot of the episode wherever you're listening to it, yes, like right now, and post it to your Instagram story. Tag me at SSRpod so I can see it and share. You can also share about the podcast on Twitter, where you can tag me at SSRpod, and on Facebook, where we are searchable as the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club, and wherever else you like spending your time on social media. I would also invite you to leave a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We can never have too many of those. They help those platforms connect new listeners to SSR so that we can continue growing our family. There's also the Patreon family, which is a cozy little subgroup within the larger listener community that brings me a lot of personal joy. Patrons contribute a few dollars to the show every month, but they get so much in return. You can become a patron for as little as $1 per month, which works out to literally 25 cents per episode. That's way less pricey than a cup of fancy coffee or even unfancy coffee. Patrons are invited to join our Discord group, be part of the SWR book club, listen to and participate in bonus episodes, read a monthly newsletter, hear exclusive Q&As from podcast guests, watch reading recap videos, and more. It's a lot of fun and a great way to support the pod too. 
Get all the details at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Thanks to all of the patrons tuning in now. Find your next great audiobook at Libro.fm. That's libro.fm and use code SSRPodcast when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Heather. Welcome to SSR. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Let's jump right in like we are Katniss and PETA jumping in to the 75th Hunger Games unexpectedly because we did not know that we were going to have to go back. I thought we were just doing this one time, but we're back. But the quarter quell came for us. (laughs) Oh, you can't escape the quarter quell. It's like once you're in, you can't get out. Um, Book two of the Hunger Games series. Heather, I want to hear all about this series for you, your perspective on it, why you wanted to come back to it for this conversation today. Well, I should say, first of all, Allie, that I was the kind of kid who would have absorbed this series when I was a middle schooler. It came out in 2009, so I was 29. I still absorbed it, right? I actually, I found my copies of the book in my mother's house because I think back in 2009, I read them, I think maybe over Christmas break or something. It gave me a very similar feel to how I felt when I was in middle school. And I loved speculative fiction. I loved female-driven fantasy. Like, that's what I read. And so I love The Hunger Games. I also, however, had this really deep feeling in the pit of my stomach. I was I was reading it as a 29-year-old who at the time I was working in public policy. I was like lobbying government for changes on behalf of children and families. And I, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit, but I, I remember feeling like this view of government that the book is giving is so dystopian and scary. And I don't know that I would want my kids to read it actually. So we have somewhat similar experiences with reading the book. I was also too old for the books when they came out. I discovered them when I was in my early 20s. I was working in publishing and I was working in kids publishing at the time. And of course, all that anybody could talk about was the Hunger Games. Um, And I did not work for Scholastic, but we as a team, we really were like, what is happening with this series and how can we come up with a book that might maybe sort of play in a similar space. So I started reading the books and I too read them over a Christmas break (laughs) at my parents' house 
and I read them back to back and I have siblings that are much younger than I am. And so I think I handed them off to one of my little sisters and we ended up watching at least one of the movies. Like it became a whole Hunger Games weekend event. And to your point about understanding the darkness of the world and of the the government portrayed in the series more specifically, I think I told this story on our first podcast episode about the Hunger Games. My dad is a trauma surgeon, and so he sees a lot of crazy stuff. Mm. And we were watching the first Hunger Games movie as a family. And within 15 minutes, he got up and he walked upstairs and he's like, I can't watch this. <gasps> and I think because I had been so immersed in the books, like, you know, when you really hunker down into a world and you almost get desensitized to it. And I think that maybe is the problem. Yeah. It hadn't really occurred to me that it was so dystopian. And then, you know, I have my popcorn. I'm sitting with my family. I'm ready to have a good time. And then my dad, mm. who literally sees dead people every day and brings them back to life like this is where he drew the line wow children hunting each other yeah yeah so as i was putting my notes together today i feel like i want to approach our conversation through the lens of big picture themes more than like the specific chronology of the book because i just i found myself jotting down so many themes or just like broader ideas so if that's okay with you i think that's how we'll jump in yeah let's do it Let's start light. Let's start with the love triangle. Yeah. <sighs> How do you feel about love triangles in general, in books, or in other kinds of pop culture? Oh, my God. They're so important, right? I mean, I, you know, I feel like I'm living a love triangle right now in my life. Like, it's so Ooh. it's so fundamental <laughs> and human. I feel like when I was a adolescent, paradigms or archetypes of guys, because I was attracted mostly to guys, were really important to me because it felt like there was always the friend. I always had best guy friends and there was always the question of whether we should be more. And then there was always the other guy like across the classroom who was a little bit more unattainable. And I feel, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a Gemini, but I always had like two guys in my life that I was sort of thinking about in contrast with one another and trying to figure out how they made me feel and how they made me feel differently and whether that was good or bad. And I feel like in Catching Fire, Katniss is really like amazingly naive about love. Like it's not, it's almost not relatable for most kids because it feels like she's like never even been sort of exposed to teen romance or anything like that. And she kind of, it's very far from her life. Surprisingly, given that her life is mostly, you know, subsistence hunting and then hunting other children, right? And then fomenting a revolution. But, you know, she really, throughout, I was noticing throughout Catching Fire, I was like, oh, she's, she kind of has no idea what she feels. Like, she really is trying to figure it out. And it's not like she, I mean, obviously she loves Gail and she's always had these butterflies in her stomach for him, but she really is ambivalent about her own agency and what romance should be, if anything. And I actually think Collins does a great job of using the love triangle to put the romance in her life, but keep it sort of utilitarian and at bay from her. Like, it's not a romance. This book is not a romance, (laughs) you know? It's certainly not a romance. And I did want to share a quote from Suzanne Collins that I found in a piece in the New York Times. And I'll link this in the show notes, listeners, if you want to check it out. But of course, the interviewer, um, David Levithan, who is another YA author, very well-known author, interviewed Suzanne Collins for the New York Times. 
Auntie asked her about the love triangle and sort of how she conceived of Peta and of Gail and whether they were big in the initial conception of the series. And she talks before that about something called just war theory, which I wasn't familiar with, but just war theory is apparently something that has evolved over thousands of years to sort of help us as a society define if there are circumstances that give you the moral right to wage war and what those circumstances might be. And so that's really what she wanted to explore with the Hunger Games. And of course, she chooses to do it through children, which is very dark. But she says of Peta and Gail, Peta and Gail appeared quickly, less as two points on a love triangle, more as two perspectives in a just war debate. Gail, because of his experiences and temperament, tends toward violent remedies. Peta's natural inclination is toward diplomacy. Katniss isn't just deciding on a partner, she's figuring out her worldview. And I'm curious how you would respond to that. And it also gets me thinking about what you were just saying, Heather, which is like, it's almost as though she's ambivalent about these guys as human beings. And she's much more concerned with figuring out how she feels about these two worldviews that they just so happen to represent. Yeah, that really makes a lot of things click for me because um, I actually just went on a tear of reading a bunch of romance novels. And it was amazing to me just how deeply unromantic this book is. And I mean, like, you know, obviously there aren't a lot of kissing scenes and whatever, but it's like she doesn't like feel romantically towards these guys. It does. It is utilitarian. It is strategic, right? Obviously, like Gail is her hunting partner and he's how she learns to hunt she's how she feeds her family and then obviously later on in catching fire and then of course much more in the final book you really get this sense that he does represent this sort of like captain of war you know we will use violence and by any means necessary to to liberate our people and then pita of course is so unbelievably kind and He's a pacifist, you know, he's a baker. He is the one who is not like kind of any other of the tributes, actually, in terms of being someone who probably is the least suited for the arena. And so that makes a lot of sense that it's more of an intellectual exercise for Susan Susan Collins than it is really a story about exploring teenage romance. It was interesting to me, too, that it seemed like the moment when Katniss in Catching Fire had like the strongest reaction, at least as as I read it to this love triangle is when there's a possibility that she isn't going to have a choice of who she picks. Mm. And so it's almost like she's reacting more to the notion that her choice might be taken away, which is obviously like an extremely legitimate thing to be upset about as we see in many ways in, in the real world. But she, she seems much more triggered by that as this idea of like, oh no, what if I don't even have the opportunity to choose if I would rather be with Gail or Peta or somebody else because the capital has already shoehorned me into this relationship with Peta for basically like views. That was much more um, stressful to her than, than really like making the decision between the two boys themselves. Right, exactly. No, she's... I mean, think about it, like, Peta, her relationship with him, although obviously she, ha- she has real affection to him, towards him and loyalty, is the major plot point of Catching Fire. Like, it starts out that President Snow comes to her home, which is like a terrifying scene, and tells her, here are the stakes of this, of this book, right? You have to convince me and the whole capital and the whole, you know, world that you really love him. And like, it's so 
that you know that's not a romance you know what I mean? like no. it's just not and she's never been in love and as you were saying like she doesn't have models for that and so he's asking her to do the impossible to perform something that she's never even seen so even if she did have those feelings for PETA and they came easily it would be very difficult for her to perform them now I hate to be reductive about this but you know I have to ask are you team PETA are you team Gail (laughs) I am team PETA because he seems like a better person. And in the end, in my own love triangle, triangle, I ended up marrying my best friend, the one who like didn't really give me butterflies until I was much older and more mature. And I think, yeah, like I want a good life for Katniss. Like I want sweetness in her life. Um, so I want her to be with the baker next door. Yes, I, I have no uh, argument for this, but I don't, I'm team Gail and I'm not sure why. <laughs> no, you got to give me a little bit of why. I think maybe I'm drawn to her sort of like raw attachment to him. Yeah. And the fact that she like can't explain why. And I think I almost see it opposite to you, Heather, where I'm like, I think that Gail is her best friend or he was her best mm-hmm. friend. Mm-hmm. And I see her having this like animal attraction a little bit to PETA because they've trauma bonded. They're mm. sleeping together on this train because they both have these. PTSD-induced nightmares. Mm -hmm. And so she seems to me to have had, like, physical contact with PETA beyond what she's had with Gail. We don't really get all the specifics about what happens on those nights when they're sleeping together. PETA is, of course, implying that Katniss is pregnant to add to the narrative that he's hoping will make them more popular when they're back in the arena. But I don't know. There's something about, like, I don't know. Her history with Gail I just find very stable. Or maybe I just think he's hot in the movie. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It is hard once it's become a movie to separate yeah. it. But no, I think you're I mean, I get it. Like, Peta was the baker next door and Gail was her ride or die best friend for, you know, all of their time in District 12 together. So Okay, so let's move on from the love triangle. Let's get into something a little heavier. Now, you hinted at this when you were talking about your initial encounter with the series But the presence of a very dystopian government in Pan Am, which is the overarching nation in which Katniss lives, there's these districts and each district is known for a different product or a different trade. And they, of course, have decided to enact this Hunger Games ritual as a way of reminding the districts that the capital is always in charge and to keep them from revolting because that's something that happened in the past. I'm curious, kind of as you have come back to it again, how you take in the depiction of this dystopian government as it's on the page written by Collins. You know, it's complicated. So first I should say for your listeners, like my my whole career has been in addressing economic inequality. And this is a fabulous, heart-wrenching, dramatic depiction of economic inequality, of hyper-capitalism, right? The idea that each group of people is completely subsumed into their productive utility, right? Whether it's the mines or whatever, each district, you know, creates something, produces something for this fabulously wealthy, like grotesquely wealthy capital, right? The capital is the 1%, the districts are the 99%. Like it's really, it's, it's great. It's, you know, the inequality that young people live with today 
um, in the U.S. and and in many places around the world is jaw dropping. And one percent of the population in the U.S. earns more wealth than the entire middle class, and forty percent of adult workers can't meet their basic needs for things like housing and food because they're paid too little, right? So this this is real, and it is you know a really important set of themes to illustrate and to use speculative fiction to bring home. So there's a part of me that's like, yes, like it's important to show this kind of economic inequality. And in fact, you know, there aren't that many books that have done that that well. You know, usually books are about like identity and not so much about class. And so I'm excited when I think that that's the lesson. But then for me, a real important solution that we need to have in our minds to unbridled economic inequality and corporate power and greed and concentration of wealth is actually government and is the ability for people to come together in public means to set the rules of the road to make the economy more fair. And I think about when I talk to middle school students and, you know, kind of teen readers, which I do increasingly now um, because of the young readers adaptation of The Some of Us, I get a different chronology than from them of life than I had, of course, duh, I'm, you know, 42 years old, but they kind of like were born into the peak of the Obama years of sense of like, anything is possible, racism is over, like progress marches on. And then it was followed by Trump and this feeling that actually the country's so divided and January 6th and climate change is getting worse and progress is not guaranteed. And so that like dystopia, that like increasingly also technologically enabled vision of a dystopia and of not being able to trust your government to do the right thing and of government being cruel, you know, like the separation of families and children at the border and all that like is so their reality that I see it differently through their eyes when I think, well, I just want to make sure that there is a sense that a reader gets when they experience these incredibly high dystopian stakes that we can do better and that you can trust leaders and that there is some way to solve big problems together. And I just feel like that's really missing. You know, obviously it comes more into play in the third and final book of the trilogy where you're like, okay, how does this resolve? And it does not resolve in a way where it's like, okay, great. The rebel government is the great government. Like it's not Star Wars where you're like, yes, I want Princess Leia to be in charge. You know, it's like, there's nobody you really want to be in charge. And there are sacrifices that are made at the end of the book that are devastating. And, and you don't even get to experience like life without the capital as being this like utopia. It's, it's just sort of like one, one bad option after the other. So I'm wondering, and I feel like you're hinting at this, but I'm just, I'll ask you outright. Do you feel as though this trilogy and more specifically Catching Fire for the purposes of this conversation presents too pessimistic of an outlook, especially if this is a book intended for young people? I think so. You know, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't want it to be the most important book in my kid's life, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and I would want to really talk about, I would want to have this conversation you know, Catching Fire in some ways is it's kind of the most optimistic of the three because you both get to see the uprising taking place. You know, it's like that moment. It's not, you know, obviously Hunger Games, there's no uprising. It's just the the world as it is. It's just the status quo. With Catching Fire, you know, there is the element of 
okay, this is how movements and revolutions begin. The people stand up, they unite, etc. That's wonderful. There's actually a real rebellion in that you have people on the inside being part of it. And it's, it's, there's a sense of momentum, obviously. And towards the end, when they liberate themselves from the arena entirely and move to District 13, you're like, okay, this is going to be great. So in some ways, Catching Fire is the most optimistic of the three. But I would say, yeah, I would have a really hard time having this worldview. And of course, I'm saying this because Collins is such an effective writer. Yeah. Right. And that the world is so immersive and it does desensitize you. And so it's just sort of like, be responsible with your power type of feeling, you know? <laughs> that's, the, that's I guess that's my takeaway. It occurs to me that something that happens in this world that all too often happens in the real world is that it seems as though the collective, the larger population is satisfied to accept a very dark status quo until like one thing happens mm. and one thing that attracts media attention. And I know that something else the author has talked about with this book is that, you know, she's talking about the impact of media and what does it mean that all of these things are broadcast for us to observe and to talk about and to parse online? Um, she's talked about how Katniss's experience is an example of what it's like to be a woman in the public eye and the double standards that we see there. But I think that to your point about Catching Fire maybe being the most hopeful of the books, as I reflect on it, I think about the fact that there are like a few key moments that seem to attract a lot of public attention, like capture the public imagination that then drive the rebellion forward, which does feel somewhat similar to what we experience in life in a way that is often frustrating because it's like these things have been happening all along and it takes like one big news story. I can't help but think of George Floyd in 2020. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if we're to draw a parallel in this book, it's like these Hunger Games have been going on forever. Yep. And it takes like, you know, this one hot couple, Katniss and Peta, going on a victory tour and talking about Prim's death to really show that people care and for people to get fired up about it. Yeah, it it is. It's about celebrity culture. I mean, I think young people can really relate to the way in which these are reality stars, right? This is a reality yeah. show, right? <laughs> you know, this is a reality show, the kind of behind the scenes, the victory tour, all that kind of stuff. The scene where she first, you know, sees PETA at the beginning of the victory tour and she runs into his arms and like, you could imagine that kind of on The Bachelor or something or, you yeah. know, like, or, <laughs> you know, it's, it's very, it really feels like a totally dystopian reality game show world in which they've become influencers. And the question is, are they using their influence to, to spark change? And I think what, one of the things I liked about, about Catching Fire is that we get to know more characters from the Capitol and see them as, and, she, and, and Katniss has empathy with them. You know, obviously she's hated everybody from, from the Capitol and resented them for her whole life but as she gets to know them she asks which i think is a really important question at one point she says well would i have been like that if i had been raised in the capital and all i knew about the outer districts was what the highly produced media tells me and what the government tells me and 
I think that's a really important and provocative question because, you know, when I was writing The Some of Us, uh, that was a question I asked all the, myself all the time, which was like, okay, radical empathy. If I had grown up, I'm a black woman. If I had grown up as a white person during segregation, for example, and, and I was just taught that there's something wrong with black people, would I have been okay with destroying the public swimming pool rather than integrating it, which is what happened in our history and is the central metaphor in the sum of us. And like, I had to really put myself in the shoes of a family that was like, you know what? Yes, I would rather, I think it's okay to destroy this public good. And likewise, like all of the people in the Capitol, obviously, as we learn, not everyone, but almost all the people in the Capitol, they're not like a different type of human being. They've just been sold a certain story. And I always say everything we believe comes from a story we've been told. And so I love that Collins has Katniss ask, well, if I'd been told all those stories, would I just believe different things? Yes. And she is meeting people from the Capitol, more people in this book than she than she met in the first book and realizing that she likes certain things about some of them. And it's I feel like her relationships with people from all over Pan Am become more nuanced in this book because she realizes that there are people in the Capitol who she likes more than she thought she might and that there are people from the districts Mm. who she likes less than she thought she might. And so there's this like shift in the in-group, out-group mentality maybe that's starting to happen where it's not just us and them anymore. And that's maybe laying the groundwork for the rebellion to be more effective. Yeah. You know, that is a really important kind of lesson of organizing and movement building is to not, obviously you have to, what we call factionalize as activists, right? You have to say, draw a line in the sand and say, whose side are you on? You know, you have to make these stark moral choices that call people to their best selves. But in so doing, if what you want to do is grow your movement, then you need people who were sort of, quote unquote, on the other side to come over to your side. And therefore, you do need to see their humanity and you do need to empathize with them and you do need to create bridges. And so I really did appreciate that whole set of interactions and scenes and reflections that Katniss has. Something else that I picked up on on this reread, I'm sure more than I did when I read the book for the first time, was its emphasis or its focus or its exploration on mental health, specifically Mm. PTSD. And I think that even when this book came out in 2009, unfortunately, we weren't using this same language to talk about mental health and trauma, at least not in like the mainstream collective conversation. And now when I read the book and I think about PETA and Katniss's relationship and the fact that they both have nightmares and the fact that they really need each other in a unique way and they're both processing what's happened with the games differently, it's so clear to me that I'm like, oh, the author is trying to show us the impact of trauma. We even see it in the characters who were not actually in the arena. Like we see how all of this has impacted Katniss's mom and her little sister and Gail and Gail's family, like all of these people are suffering in different ways. And it's just so fascinating to come back to a book years later with a different level of understanding, even if, you know, I have so much to learn. I'm by no means an expert, but even just from like an armchair, some armchair reading about trauma and mental health, like I was able to understand so much more of what the author was trying to do. It's such a good point, Allie. Um, you know, Hamish is a drunk, right? Yes. Who like, it, it's very clear that he 
has alcoholism as a coping mechanism for the trauma of his time in the arena. And he's a really important character in the book. She doesn't judge him. She buys him alcohol to make sure that he, you know, doesn't have to go through withdrawal. It's sort of like, you know, you think about all of the people with substance abuse in society, people with substance abuse coming back from war. There's basically a would have been homeless were it not for the kind of Victor house that he gets to have. Homeless, alcoholic veteran in the center of the book, you know, which I think is really important. And then Annie, the character who is the kind of somewhat off-screen love interest of one of the really important other tributes in the arena, in the games, is a young person who's been broken by the trauma. So I think you're right. You're really right that this was trying to make sure that PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and trauma was really explored in very sympathetic ways throughout the book. And appropriately so, right? Because the thing is, a lot of times, I will give Collins a lot of credit for this, because a lot of times, you know, our entertainment is extremely violent, and children's entertainment is extremely violent, and there's no consequences. Nobody ever gets physically hurt. Nobody ever gets emotionally hurt. I took my four-year-old to the movies, and we watched Puss in Boots, the version that's the installment that's out right now. I think it's called The Last Wish or something. And I just kind of couldn't believe how violent it was. Hmm. You know, it's like all about how great of a fighter he is. And it's all of this, you know, first third of it is just fight scene after fight scene after fight scene. And then the entire rest of the movie, death is stalking him because he's on his last life as a cat. And I was just like, what? What? (laughs) What? That's so dark. I was like, why is this the preoccupation of this movie for elementary school kids and like kindergartners? I just don't get it. Like, why is this the theme? And anyway, but that's just to say there's so much violence in children's entertainment, but this takes it seriously that there are mental health repercussions. Yes. And I think the fact that that PETA and Katniss actually, like they watch, they find the old tapes from Hamish's original games and they actually watch what he went through because he doesn't want to talk about it, which is consistent with the parallel you drew, Heather, to this old veteran persona. Like I don't know many veterans, but the few that I have known, like they won't talk about their experience Mm -hmm. and it sort of is incumbent upon the people who know and love them to figure out what happened and maybe why they were impacted in the way that they were. And that's exactly what Katniss and Peta do in the book. I, I'm thinking as we have this conversation, like, and, and I read this book when I was in my twenties, I wasn't a kid, mm. but even in my twenties, and I'm embarrassed to say this, I feel a little bit like this book was wasted on me because I, I loved the like, reflections on fame and celebrity culture and influencer culture. And this is pre the influencer culture that we have now. I thought that that was all really fascinating. I was into the love triangle. This really was the age of dystopian YA. So I feel like I was just like absorbing dystopia after dystopia after dystopia. And maybe I didn't appreciate all of the different levels at which the book is working and all the different things that Collins is interrogating on the page. And so there's a part of me that like wants to make sure that any child that reads this book has like a handy guide yeah. because it's so smart and there's so much happening. And I just, I feel like it sadly is like maybe wasted on young readers, although I know that they enjoy it and it's of course been extremely successful. 
I almost feel like adults benefit from reading it even more. And I don't know that I've ever actually said that on the podcast. Hmm, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting first, given that the whole podcast is, you know, adult reading of YA books. You know, I think about the books that I read as a kid that stuck with me. And it's not all the intellectual levels that we now having gone through college of critical analysis and literary analysis can layer onto it. But if the book is good, in the core story are all the things that the author wants to communicate. Because the stories stick with you. Like anybody who's read The Hunger Games can retell to you the story of Katniss and the plot points and the transformation that she goes through are the lesson. And I think about that a lot now. I just, this morning, Allie, I was just at a middle school talking to probably 75 fourth through eighth graders about the Some of Us Young Readers adaptation. And I was like, okay, they haven't read the book yet. I want to tell them what they need to know and I was like, okay, I have to tell them the stories. I'm not going to give them a whole bunch of statistics. I'm not going to have enough time or I can't write at them, right? So I can't layer in all these different themes. I have to just give them a plot-driven story that will stick with them. And I do think that, yeah, I do think that makes it a challenge as an author to strip away all the things you're trying to do, right? All the like social commentary da, 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 and just be like, if it's not in the core story, if a nine-year-old doesn't include some representation of it in the plot, this is a world in which kids have to fight each other to the death to pay tribute to the capital, which is a place that takes all of the wealth from all of the work of all the rest of them. And you know, Katniss leads unwittingly becomes the symbol of a revolution to uh, say no. And if like that plot summary doesn't really give you everything you need, then it's then it's all for naught because that's what people come away with. That's what remains with them. Well, I think we've we've done a pretty good job of covering my final question, which is always about how the experience of coming back to a book from my guest childhood compares to their memory of reading it when they were a kid or even if they were in their 20s the first time. I just want to make sure, is there anything that we maybe missed in that comparison that you want to make sure we cover before we move on to the next part of our conversation? Yeah, I mean, I just on this point that we've been talking about, is it too negative? What's the view of government? What's the view of capitalism? I do think it's appropriately complicated. For me, it's really important um, and I try to do this in my book to to show how collective action, people coming together, is the solution to most of the things that ail us in society. And that the powerful people who are protecting the status quo, like the wealthy political economic elite, want to keep people divided. And, you know, I think that's one of the big lessons from the Hunger Games, right? Is like once is the the goal of the capital is to keep people in their districts and at odds with one another and separate from one another, literally fighting one another, which is the way that people in our society, the way that 
you know, people of color who are working in middle class can see themselves, you know, in competition for dwindling resources when in fact, you know, the wealthy have so many uh, resources. Like that's all there. There's just the thing that's missing that I feel really hungry for all the time as a human being, which is stories of hope. You know, show us the world that we want to build. Like give us a vision of what happens when all these characters sacrifice so much, you know, is there a better world? You know, the like pre story of this is that, you know, the North American governments have collapsed, right? And Panem is this kind of uber capitalist dystopia. And it's like, well, <laughs> okay. So, right. We've got the collapse of what we have. Something worse yeah. comes later. Like all these right. children make all these sacrifices and lead oh. a revolution. And then what? Yeah. Well, I think that that call for more stories of hope is a great place to wrap up our conversation about Catching Fire. What else have you been reading lately that you would recommend to us? So I read a lot of picture books because I have a four-year-old. Yeah. And that, you know, listen, the picture book is an art form. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you you yeah. get a story, you tell it in really spare words. Obviously the pictures matter, but like not really actually, you know, it's like if the story doesn't hang and if you don't like piece out page by page, you know, these are like 12, 15 pages long, then it's not a good uh, board book or picture book. Um, So one that I really like that I've been reading recently to my son is called The Proudest Blue. It's by Iptihaj Muhammad, who is actually an amazing Olympic fencer. And it's about two little sisters um, who wear hijabs. And it's just a really great, really great book. Um, And then the other thing I've been reading is, as I was saying, Ali, I just went on a romance tear. And I've been reading a lot of YA romance, which has just been so fun. It's like the exact opposite of everything I do professionally. The exact opposite. It's total candy. So I read the Court of Ro- Ro- Thorns and Roses books by Sarah Moss. And then I read these A Promise of Fire books by Amanda Boucher. And it's amazing. The plot's exactly the same. The formula is so clear. <laughs> <laughs> but amazing. it was just really fun. Yeah. Great. Well, I'll include links to all of your recommendations in the show notes. I also want to make sure that we talk about your book. So Heather, you are the author of The Sum of Us. And then as you've mentioned, you have been visiting schools to talk about the version that has been adapted for young readers. We have lots of parents. We have lots of teachers listening. We have people that don't have kids or teach kids, but I'm sure should still get a copy of The Sum of Us. Can you tell us a little bit about the two books, how they work together, and what readers should know before they pick them up, either for themselves or the little ones that they know? Great. Well, um, so The Sum of Us is a book that I wrote at the end of a three-year journey, really trying to find an answer to the question, why does it seem like we can't have nice things in America? And by nice things, I don't mean like hovercraft backpacks. I mean, paid family leave and universal childcare and a well-funded public school in every neighborhood. And this journey really helped me see that racism in our politics and our policymaking is actually so often what's holding us back in ways that don't just impact people of color, but actually impact all of us. And the central metaphor at the heart of the book is the very true story of what happened when many of the country's nearly 2,000 usually segregated public swimming pools were forced to integrate. And instead, many towns and cities chose to drain their public pools rather than integrate them. And that's really kind of this drained pool metaphor for how we are often at odds with one another when collective action 
is really the way forward. And so The Sum of Us is a book by an economic policy expert talking about issues like universal health care and education funding and democracy and voting rights. But it's also fundamentally a book full of stories about people trying to figure out a way to work together. And it's a book of hopeful stories because I, as I said, really thought it was important to include hopeful stories. And so as I was first sort of hitting the road with the adult book, people kept saying, oh, I wish this was taught in schools. This should be required reading. And I thought about it. I thought, well, you know, it's true. Like, I really wish that I had some of this information, particularly about the ways that racist policymaking shapes our economy today. I wish I had it earlier in my upbringing, because I think I would have had more structural stories for what I saw kind of in my neighborhoods and really would have replaced stereotypes about different communities with a sense of, oh, actually, the world is this way because of public policy decisions. And so we, uh, with Random House Children's, Delacorte Press, we adapted it. And it's really, it's kind of the same book, but a lot shorter. So it's more accessible, but I didn't dumb it down. It's uh, got an educator's guide. Uh, The adult book has a book club discussion guide. It's been used as like a first read for college fresh people. And uh, it's been like a one community read and library read. It's a book that I hope people can read together and discuss. Well, I am so grateful that you brought your expertise to both versions of that book. I'm so glad that they're both available. Listeners, get a copy for yourself, get them for your kids, your students, get them for your parents. It's a great opportunity to unite around a single message, which is which is something that we talk about on the podcast a lot. Like, I wish that I had somebody reading these books alongside me. So Heather, I really appreciate you sharing with us. I appreciate you sharing your expertise in the context of Catching Fire as well. It's been so great talking with you and I will be sure to include links to your books, to your podcast and everything else that you are working on in the show notes for this episode so that our listeners can access them. But it has been so lovely chatting with you. Thank you, Allie. This has been so fun. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.